Welcome to School of Movies. Shrek. DreamWorks Pictures invites you to a land of fairy tales. Hey! Oh, no, 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 no. Dead girl off the table. Where are we supposed to put it? The bed's taken. What? Where an unlikely hero. Ah! You definitely need some Tic Tacs or something because your breath stinks. Rescues a fair princess. You didn't play the dragon? It's on my to-do list. From a nasty villain. Eat me! With the help of his trusty companion. This is gonna be fun. We can stay up late, swapping manly stories, and in the morning, I'm making waffles. Shrek. Shrek. Thank you very much. I'm here till Thursday. Mike Myers, Eddie Murphy, Cameron Diaz, John Lithgow. You love this woman, don't you? Yes. You wanna hold her? Yes. Please. Yes. Then you got the got the time. Wreck. Wow. Let's do that again. No, no. This is a long-promised, long-awaited show that we wanted to tackle after we'd gotten relatively up-to-date with the Disney specials, because, of course, this is one of the most important and influential films that Disney never made. Sharon could not attend this episode, so I brought in Dr. Victoria Grieve. Hi. To put this film in historical context, we have to go back to The Lion King, the 1994 pinnacle of Disney's third renaissance. Around this time, there are three men running the studios. Chief Executive Officer, Michael Eisner. That's the guy who's going to greenlight all of those straight-to-video sequels like Beauty and the Beast, Enchanted Christmas, Aladdin, Return of Jafar, and Pocahontas 2. Frank Wells is president of Disney, and there's a fellow named Jeffrey Katzenberg. Michael and Jeffrey get brought in as business sharks in the mid-80s to whip the film department into shape and start making the House of Mouse some bona fide hits. Thanks to Jeffrey's positioning of adult-oriented films like Dead Poet Society, Good Morning Vietnam and Three Men and a Baby, Disney go from being the least successful big studio in 1984 to the most successful one in 1987. As we've documented, they also galvanized the animation team with ruthless efficiency. Remember, these men and women have been kind of coasting since Walt's death nearly two decades ago, and they don't ever believe that they will hit the heights of Cinderella again. After a difficult initial period and the expensive box office bomb The Black Cauldron, personally butchered in the edit by Katzenberg, together they manage The Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company, before striking gold with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Jeffrey also strikes deals with Miramax, a production team that will define prestigious drama in the 90s, run by Bob and Harvey Weinstein, and Pixar, a studio that will change the way we animate forever, run by John Lasseter. Katzenberg is on a roll, and he wants more power, lobbying to replace Frank Wells as Eisner's second-in-command. Roy E. Disney, Walt's nephew and a significant voice on the Disney board, is not a huge fan of Jeffrey's. Eisner says that Wells would feel hurt in that scenario and, according to Katzenberg, assures him, if for any reason Frank is not here, you are the number two person and I want you to have the job. Shortly thereafter, Frank dies suddenly and tragically in a helicopter crash. Jeffrey steps up to the plate to claim his prize, but Michael says no. Roy blocks him, and Mike gets to be both CEO and president at once. 
Katzenberg is an egomaniac with a desperate need to feel important, according to Disney board member Stanley Gold. So Jeff gets forced out and sues the company for what he is owed for making them a bunch of hits and savvy business deals, which amounts to $250 million in a settlement. That's a quarter of a billion, folks. Jeff decides he's going to start his own studio with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. They produce hand-drawn animated films like The Prince of Egypt, The Road to El Dorado, and Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, directly challenging Disney, who are themselves now on shaky ground, as they have, for the first time, a studio working with them, making films more popular than they make, and a major competitor out for their blood, who knows their weaknesses, and nothing they make hits as hard as The Lion King, and it won't until Frozen in 2013. Prince of Egypt, with its lavish Moses story, does well for DreamWorks, but not the others. Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, costs $60 million and only makes $80 million, which in executive speak is a loss of $125 million. That's literally what it says on Wikipedia, and my basic grasp of maths and economics cannot fathom the logistics. So in 2004, DreamWorks pivots to only CG animation because in Jeffrey's words, hand-drawn is a thing of the past. And Sinbad, which is actually pretty great, has only just gotten a Blu-ray release after 15 years. In 1998, several years before this decision, DreamWorks make Ants, entirely coincidentally at the same time as Pixar's A Bug's Life. It stars Academy darling Woody Allen. It is made by Pacific Digital Images, a 3D animation company brought by DreamWorks. PDI picked up Shrek based on a 1990 30-page long picture book. Here is literally all the plot of that original Shrek book. Shrek is a repugnant green monster who can breathe fire and takes pleasure in being repulsive and destructive. After his parents force him to leave home, he meets a witch who foretells that a donkey will take him to a knight whom he will conquer and marry a princess even uglier than himself. After meeting the donkey, he is taken to a castle where he defeats the knight. Inside, he meets an ugly princess and the two are married, living happily ever after. That's it. That was in development into a major movie, pretty much from day one at DreamWorks in 1994, the same year that Jeffrey was relieved of duty at Disney, taking seven years to get to the big screen. Chris Farley recorded most of the ogre's lines and died in 1997. Mike Myers was brought on board, delivering two whole takes on Shrek, the second time around delivering a voice caricatured by Myers in So I Married an Axe Murderer, and also as Fat Bastard in the two increasingly more dismal, unfunny, and hugely popular Austin Powers sequels. Shrek was released by PDI in May 2001, less than four months before the September 11th attacks. America was in the sunset of its 90s hubris, feeling untouchable and cocky. They had survived Y2K. George Bush was in the White House, despite being grossly incompetent and receiving fewer votes than Al Gore. And the charts reverberated to Britney Spears, Destiny's Child, Jennifer Lopez, and Eminem. The stage was set for an irreverent animated adventure, and when we first saw it, Sharon and I really enjoyed Shrek. I think it took the next two sequels to kind of wear us down. Nevertheless, this is a beloved film by many, and we're going to peel back the scab and take a look underneath. Join us, if you dare. And if you're having trouble remembering which one this was, since we assume most of you have seen it, I'll synopsize, which also helps the 11 of you that never saw Shrek. Shrek is a mean-spirited and highly territorial green ogre who loves the solitude of his swamp, finds his life interrupted when countless fairy tale creatures are exiled there by the fairy tale hating and vertically challenged Lord Farquaad of Duloc, 
Angered, he decides to ask Farquaad to exile them elsewhere. Farquaad bids him go find a princess for he, the Lord, to marry in exchange for removing the squatters. That's again, literally the first paragraph on Wikipedia. He journeys with an annoying talking donkey to a tower guarded by a dragon, which they evade. He rescues her and she is disappointed that he is not a handsome knight. They travel back and the two get closer as they are both kind of gross. Donkey alone discovers that Fiona is enchanted to turn into an ogre at night, but she wants to be a beautiful human because that's the standard she has been taught. Shrek overhears and misinterprets this, feeling rejected, and fetches Farquaad, who decides to marry Fiona immediately. Shrek goes home alone, and Donkey fetches him back, telling the ogre he has pushed everyone away, even a woman who might love him. They storm the wedding together with the help of the dragon, who eats Farquaad, just as he's rejecting ogre Fiona. Shrek and Fiona kiss, and she takes love's true form, ending the enchantment and remaining an ogre. Then some mice dance while Donkey sings. So let's start this whole thing with some praise for Shrek. Well, we did this with the It Chapter 2 show. What's good about the film before we get tangled in the weeds of its more problematic elements? Uh, so three things come to mind, actually, which is more than I anticipated at the beginning of this bit. I think that the animation was really impressive for the time and pushed forward a lot of the technology, like Sharon was saying. A lot of the facial animations like very detailed. A lot of the uh, clothing is detailed in a way that I was surprised that I could tell what kind of fabric was being simulated for the different like dresses and things. That legacy, I think, is definitely worthwhile, and I was surprised to find that it held up as well as it did, which isn't to say it held up terribly well, but it was better than I anticipated or remembered. I really like the dragon, but she's... A big dragon and and kind of adorable so i don't know how i couldn't i have a soft spot for lady dragons there aren't many of them no there there really really aren't and i think the only other good part is i genuinely enjoy the gingerbread man scene i mean gingy goes to guantanamo bay well i mean not that part but i mean the specific you like the wordplay yeah, that, that whole The Muffin Man thing. I, I still, I, I was surprised again how much I still enjoyed that scene. And even, like, milk boarding a gingerbread man is... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, okay, it's kind of horrific in the time since, but... As long as you don't think too hard about it, it's hilarious. That's what I was about to say, is I think you, you hit it on the head. If you don't really think about it, if you kind of look to the side and only watch it out of your periphery of your vision and you don't really think about it. It's a great movie. I do like, and I think most people do, the hallelujah scene. That, that feels kind of heartfelt and it's um, a low point that makes you root for the characters. It's also probably the best use of hallelujah in a film. Certainly way better than the one in Watchmen where two neurotic superheroes are boning inside a giant floating owl's head. Yeah, I can't agree with that one. I think the Watchmen scene was, was done better, and I'm pretty sure that the Shrek scene was was taking its direction from another movie somewhere. Uh, did you watch the commentary for this? Uh, no, we didn't. Oh, then I have fascinating things to tell you. Were we missing out? You're better for it. It was a... The commentary is with the two directors, Andrew Adamson and Vicky Jensen. And I don't remember which producer. It definitely wasn't Jeffrey Katzenberg, but I don't know if it was Aaron Warner or John Williams. I think it was Aaron Warner. 
the whole thing was weirdly shot through with this kind of cynicism and the way that they talked about it, the whole production sounds even more slapdash than I thought it was. They were talking about how Mike Myers came in to improv scenes that hadn't been animated yet and then they animated it around the improv just as often as oh like try the veal yeah there were a lot of weird and the the scene before that where he tells donkey that uh he's angling for a smack bottom or something really kind of jarringly out of place phrase i found was something that was improv that they added in after the fact or the fact that there was a scene that they were talking about, oh, do you remember when we had Mike record that in the back of a car because we didn't get a good take in the studio and somebody had to follow him to a, to the car? Even the sound mixing on a technical level was apparently really, really piecemeal. They talked about how uh, pro- the producers did comedy passes to add more gags, which I found big red flags pretty much. This is often done uh, with something called script punch-up. I'm going to let Pat Oswald explain this one. Punch-up is where they have a script for a movie that hasn't been shot, and a bunch of writers and comedians sit around the table, and they punch it up. They make it better. They go, here, add a joke here, add a joke there. Move this scene. Cut this scene. This should be at the end. This should be at the beginning. And you tighten the script up, and you get it ready to go. And it's really fun. You hang out with your friends. It's a lot of fun. But lately, I've been doing punch-up on all these computer-animated movies, and what they don't tell you is those movies are 80% done when they bring you in. The movie's finished. So when you start saying, well, that opening scene's too long, I'd shorten, they go, whoa, hold on. We just spent $140 million on this. We're not changing anything. And then you say, uh, what exactly do you want me to do? And they go, we need you to think up funny jokes that people off screen can yell over the unfunny, uninteresting action to make it a comedy. I didn't know you could make comedies that way. I didn't know you could take sad, boring footage and then have people just yell jokes over it. Like, can you take Super 8 footage of a kid's birthday party and none of the other kids the invited showed up and he's all alone with his little hat to the side and this sad little cake in the kitchen? I know it's awful, but then you have a guy off screen go, I just fell on my bottom into some butterscotch. And you go, wow, someone who I can't see, nor will I ever see, just fell into some butterscotch and is talking out loud about it the way nobody does. This is hilarious. Swaggity, smaggity, And just so much of the commentary was about that. I think there was a specific shot. Oh, so near the end of the film, they talk a lot about how they were doing storytelling shortcuts because they didn't know what to do with the scene. So the reason that Dragon launches Shrek through the the roof of the tower where Fiona is whenever they're quote-unquote saving her is because they didn't know what else to do with the scene and so they were just like ah it's a shortcut let's just let's just have Dragon chuck him up there which I don't know it's really unsatisfying for me and they kept talking about how a lot of the shots were aping other movies specifically there was one that I I had I would never have known 
where uh, when Dragon is coming in at the end after Donkey and Shrek make up and they're going to go save Fiona, that shot of Dragon coming in is apparently supposed to call back specifically to True Lies and a helicopter coming in. But that's such a basic scene that I would have never tied to this other better film. And that's where your inspiration was. Uh, If anything, doing my notes and researching this gave me flashbacks to when we covered Event Horizon. Also, we're attributing a measure of depth and purpose, which when you listen to the creators just wasn't there. Yeah, and that was the same feeling that I had going through this because the whole thing felt very piecemeal. They were working on it. So like a grab bag of comedy bits. Like, grab my bag there, donkey. Oh, God, why is CrossFit Shrek here already? (laughs) No. Uh, But they they specifically brought in these, these people who are known for improv to do the two main characters and then redid some of the animation specifically around that improv or... At one point, the scene where they do the whole wrestling scene with Shrek and the Knights, and it does that gladiator shot, The one of the directors specifically says, it was so good to be producing this film for so long because we could really incorporate references and gags from films as they were coming out. And that feels weird. So it's really just bits from other movies. That occurred to me so many times going through this film about how it was basically nothing but references to other media with very little intent other than the surface level gag. And I can't think of a better description of a modern day meme than that. I wrote down a specific uh, quote from them near the end of the movie talking about how every frame of this movie is so deliberate. And I wrote it down because it's so it stands in such stark contrast to how most of the film they talked about coming up with it at the last minute, having to go back and cut scenes, the troubled production of having to change voice actors, re-recording voice actors so many times, and it just it didn't sound like it was terribly deliberate to me. They talked a lot about how the storyboard called for this scene to be like this, but we did it like this for this other reason. And it just seemed very odd to me that they would have that quote at the end when it conflicted so much with what they were talking about before. And it, maybe it was presented in a weird way where they were talking specifically about the hallelujah scene or something at the end. But they they were really referencing the whole movie. Like they were talking about it like it was the whole movie. And I just – I could not agree with that. But the one thing I definitely wanted to bring up that I just uh, – They talked about how difficult it was for them to animate Fiona because they had a largely male staff and they spent so much time trying to get her movement to look natural that it was a serious problem in production. And I just died a little inside whenever they they talked about that because it was just so... Like, really? Really? Okay. Okay. So like Assassin's Creed when they said we couldn't animate a female lead character because all those jiggles, we'd have to get the references for that, and who knows what a woman looks like. I didn't know that DreamWorks was a subsidiary of Ubisoft. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. And I find it particularly telling that when I mentioned that we were going to be talking about Shrek today to... Uh, my partner, she said, oh, you know, I, I remember, like, that's the film that was 
around the same time as Prince of Egypt, right? They were doing them both at the same time. I heard, and she works in the tech industry, and this could be wildly apocryphal, I don't know, but I heard that the the people who were working on the Prince of Egypt who didn't perform to a certain standard were... Oh, I know this. They were punished. If they didn't do well enough, they were moved across to Shrek. Yeah. So Shrek was the, like, DreamWorks gulag where you went if you didn't do your your work as well. I'm glad I got to talk a little bit about the commentary so that my uh, my watching through it wasn't wasted, but my goodness, did it reveal a lot. And like I said, really reminded me of our evaluation and our exploration of Event Horizon, of all things. One thing I do definitely like is Harry Gregson Williams' score, mainly because he plays it straight. That fairy tale music at the beginning of the film, which DreamWorks have used for its logo repeatedly, that's legitimately lovely music. It's engaging, and when that's playing, it feels like the film is being sincere underneath all of the, you know, pop music and pop culture references. And I think you definitely hit on something there, because when I was watching it with the commentary, a lot of the score and the dialogue was lessened so that you could hear the commentary. And I found those scenes that... You disengaged? Yeah, there was a lot of disengagement. It was it was a lot of a struggle to get through it. So I think you're onto something about the score being a really powerful part of the movie's just engagement. And I like a lot of the facial detail on the animation, specifically for subtle emotions and little eye movements to suggest that the characters are thinking. Some of that is actually fairly pioneering because this is the first non-Pixar fully CG movie and Pixar up to that point have been animating toys and ants. These were supposed to be living creatures and thus the minutiae of their movements, you know, just pursing their lips, glancing about and generally feeling like they had Life Inside Them was done better than could be expected, especially considering some of the stuff that was coming up from DreamWorks. And while we're talking about playing things straight and actually playing it from the heart, rather than a faint sense of embarrassment and derision, I'm going to introduce the Shrek Broadway musical to you folks. Now, most of you probably won't have seen this or heard anything from it. It came out in 2008 after the Shrek series was pretty much done, if you don't count Puss in Boots. And it's a retelling of the original movie, but they deepen different aspects of it, especially Fiona. And in essence, they kind of fix a lot of problems that we have with Shrek. And I think the main reason is because they're playing to a Broadway audience who by and large like Disney. So they kind of replace a bit of that cynicism, not all of it, but a bit of it, with maybe wearing your emotions on your sleeve a little more or maybe some more emotional complexity that actually kind of gets explored. So I'm going to talk about it throughout, but let's start off with the first song, Big, Bright, Beautiful World, which is little seven-year-old Shrek and what took him from being a child ogre to the guy who lives in the swamp that we all know and love, which involves a lonely journey. And there's a neat moment where he passes seven-year-old Fiona being led off to her tower by her parents. 
But eventually, we get to meet adult Shrek, who bursts out of the outhouse to rapturous applause. It's definitely playing to an audience who knows and loves Shrek. But the lyrics, tone and pitch of the song do get you rooting for him and understanding that he hasn't had a fantastic life from Jump Street. So, this is Big Bright Beautiful World. Once upon a time, there was a little ogre named Shrek who lived with his parents in a bog by a tree. It was a pretty nasty place, but he was happy because ogres like nasty. On his birthday, the little ogre's parents sat him down to talk, just as all ogre parents had for hundreds of years before. Listen, son, you're growing up so quickly. Growing up bigger by the day. Although we want you here, the rules are very clear. Now you're seven. Now you're seven. So it's time to go away. Your mama packed a sandwich for your trip. Your papa packed your boots in case of snow. You're gonna make us proud. No backing up allowed. Just keep walking. Just keep walking. And you'll find somewhere to go. It's a big, bright, beautiful world with happiness all around. It's peaches and cream and every dream comes true. But not for you. It's a big, bright, beautiful world with possibilities everywhere. And just around the bend, there's a friend or two. But not for you. We're ugly, son, which means that life is harder. A place no one would ever dare to tread And if they happen by, make sure you terrify them If you don't, son If you don't, son Then you'll surely wind up dead And so, the little ogre went off and found a muddy patch of swampland far, far away from the world that despised him. And there he stayed for many years, tucked away and all alone, which was just the way he liked it.
coffee fun And shove it where the sun don't shine I prefer a life like this It's not that complicated Sir, I'm fated to be lonely And I'm destined to be hated If you read the books, they say It's why I was created But I don't care Cause being liked Is grossly So that's how the Broadway musical begins. I wonder, can anyone tell me how the original Shrek movie begins? Oh, that's it. It goes, Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming Fed to the rules and I hit the ground running Didn't make sense not to live for fun Your brain gets smart but your head gets dumb So much to do, so much to see So what's wrong with taking the back streets? You'll never know if you don't go You'll never shine if you don't glow This is a song that's been played so much in connection with cheap, tacky shit that we associate it with badness, even if it's catchy now you could argue that the first few minutes of the 2001 Shrek film make the case for all of what DreamWorks was setting up to do in this decade, which is thankfully transcended in Kung Fu Panda and How to Train Your Dragon and The Croods. So it's a storybook, it's a toilet, and it's a gross bathing scene set over the credits with All Star by Smash Mouth, previously not made famous by the McGee music video tied in with 1999's Mystery Men two years previously. What does this intro sequence say to the audience? Well, I, I think first off, Alex, I, I believe you mean McGee, or, or however you say it. One interpretation is that they are calling a shot at Disney specifically because so many of the early Disney films, especially based on fairy tales from the past, open with that storybook. It's kind of been encapsulated in cinematic animated language for decades at this point. And Snow White, Cinderella, Sword in the Stone. Yeah, absolutely. And then Shrek wiping his ass with it is we're not your daddy's or your mama's Disney. We're not your daddy's Disney. We're we're something new or something irreverent or something adult and and it's very very cynical I, for the rest of the film I, th I really think we're going to be talking about ways you can interpret various scenes and the intent of this film but having watched the commentary I don't entirely believe that there was that intent there on purpose for any of it there is value in like a critique from a specific philosophy, like a feminist critique or a Marxist critique and that kind of thing. But that means that we are bringing a hell of a lot more to the text of the film than the people who made it did. 
And I think that is incredibly relevant for Shrek. And I just want to put that out there for the rest of this conversation. On the animation, actually, another thing that came up in the commentary, and I can't believe I'm going back to it so many times, but they talked about how instead of having animators involved with specific characters, they were animators dedicated to specific scenes, which is why some of the animation for given characters is actually a little different from scene to scene, which is not the way Disney does it. Disney has specific animators for their key players in their films. So like the genie is voiced by Robin Williams and his physical performance in the recording booth informs upon, but is very much sculpted by animator Eric Goldberg, who gives the genie all that movement. It is a two-man portrayal of the genie. There's something about that that I feel has been somewhat lost in a lot of these more modern films where they it's just a bunch of people working on it. You don't know the names of individual animators, but not to say that we knew the... Like, I didn't know the name of the animator for the genie until you just said it, and I assume you had to look it up. Yeah, one of the benefits of a six-year Disney project still ongoing with Daniel Floyd. You remember a few things. So when you say they had teams on individual aspects, I thought you were going to say that there was uh, someone on poop, someone on farts, someone on earwax, gross candles. Actually, actually, Alex, in the commentary, they talked about how they spent an inordinate amount of their time specifically on the liquid physics of the mud, the water, the fire, and the earwax. They specifically called... Oh, my gross earwax. It's amazing I can hear anything at all with this going on. They specifically called out the earwax scene as one that they had to redo over and over again to get just the right level of grossness without being truly repulsive. Well, they failed. It was truly repulsive. Cool. They talked a lot about the spittle whenever he's yelling at the the ogre hunters that we're about to get to and, and about how there's just enough sliminess to it. And they were really proud of that. And I find that just interesting, that the just fascinating that the, the directors and this producer were so focused on the grossness of the liquid physics and how much time and resources went into animating them. Shortly afterwards, we get to what is dubbed in the soundtrack by Harry Gregson Williams himself. This is the name of the track, Fairy Tale Death Camp. <laughs> right, you've made two errors there. Firstly, invoking death camps at all. Mm-hmm. And secondly, this isn't a death camp. It's an internment and deportation camp. For now. And I gotta say, just watching it in 2019, I don't think a joke can age as horribly and badly as this one does right now. Oh, that's a yikes. That's a that's a yikes for me. Um oh, or as we say in the academic business, there's a lot to unpack there. It's a it's a baffling decision on so many levels. The three bears gag that is called back to later when you find Mama Bear dead. Hang on, what? I'm, I may have missed that. She's a she's a bearskin rug in Farquaad's fuck chambers. And Jesus. Yes, where the the mirror's obviously disgusted with what it had to just witness. Oh, was that but, when Lord Farquaad looks at his boner under the covers? Yeah. In a kid's film! <laughs> but the the whole thing is just so unsettling in how it's like oh we're being irreverent we're being cynical and i'm like no this is like wildly uncomfortable and i guess it's fine to establish the evilness of your evil character by hearkening back to the fact that they are creating a camp wherein they are concentrating the population that they find 
unacceptable. Uh, it, it's a shame we don't have a, a better like two word phrase for that. That's really evocative. Hang on, I'm watching the wedding at the end and the sing song, mm-hmm. and you got Papa Bear there with glasses, and you got Baby Bear. Mama Bear's nowhere. Right? They didn't bring her back. That was definitely her. She. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Farquaad killed and skinned her. This is like some Game of Thrones shit. And even the part where they have Geppetto dropping off Pinocchio for five shillings, and he's like, "Father, father, no." And they're just like, yeah, another possessed doll. Huck it into a into a cage. That's so dark. That moment. And I'm not offended. I like dark humor. I love dark humor. It's just, it's so horrible mm-hmm. that I'm baffled. Yeah. I'm baffled this is in a kid's film. Not offended. <laughs> That's the thing. It's a baffling decision is more than anything else that they went, they decided to go that dark and thought that it was funny or valuable to the proceedings. But you, you've mentioned a couple of times how you find all the humans to be really, really distastefully animated and ugly. Do you know how they animated all of them? I know it was originally going to be motion capture, like the, the shit that plagued Food Fight when you've got this really basic motion suit on a person so the model moves about horribly and erratically. But that, that doesn't account for the barely animated, disgusting-looking faces of these just awful, uncanny people. You know, even Pixar couldn't make people look good yet. Except for Boo. Well, so, I mean, specifically, all of the humans that are non-main characters, they had a whole box of... Or, well, you know, a virtual box. Oh, different body parts. Yeah, different parts. And it was mix and match. They called them uh, uh, Mr. Potato Head animation techniques. I'll have you know that in comparison to the villagers in Shrek, Mr. Potato Head is a triumph of animation. (laughs) I have heard of something like this, though, where, like, advertisers will take lots of body parts from... Yeah. Lots of facial features from different people harvested from Google like so many ripe apples and assemble an artificial person, Frankenstein it together and use that for advertising and you can't sue them because they're not using your likeness, only your eyes on a toothpaste ad or something in Japan. Yeah, there's a there's a website actually that started this. It was a machine learning program that somebody created. It's a website you can go to right now called... www.westealyoureyes.org? No, that would be too on the nose. This is what happens when tech people aren't forced to take ethics classes. So it's a website website that somebody made on a lark it is called this person does not exist and it will when you go there it will randomly generate using a machine learning algorithm a photograph that looks like a real person most of the time like the vast majority of the output look like real honest to goodness people that is created from stock photos and photos found online to, to generate um, a person. So yes, it is very literally, your eyes can end up on a person in an advertisement somewhere. This text sounds like just a gold mine for a horror director who wants to do a movie about people that aren't quite right and really unsettle the audience. It, it's on the same level as like those deep fake videos that they're talking about. And we're absolutely going to see a horror film at some point about those. It, it might just be real life, but we'll probably also see a film. But that's why any of the shots in this film with a large crowd of humans look kind of weird. Because you'll see, well, wait, that person has the same head as that person and that person, but their bodies are different. And it's 
kind of unsettling once you realize that that's how they went about that. Oh, back to Smash Mouth and All-Star. That was never meant to be in the movie. It was just a placeholder while they prepared a, a completely original track all about Shrek. But the test audiences loved it so much that they just left it in. That's amazing, actually. It, and it, it actually works. Like, Smash Mouth is a fine band. They actually are very pro-trans rights on Twitter, which I appreciate. I never knew Smash Mouth were that cool. Yeah, Smash Mouth, pretty okay. That song, very played out and incredibly trite, which, surprisingly, fits Shrek quite well. The main subtext that I noticed this time when we watched Shrek... Uh, became the central core of this episode. And that is that this is a film about rejection. But like an onion, you keep peeling away the layers and there's more and more rejection underneath. First off, it rejects the idea of conventional beauty. It, it suggests that Fiona being an ogre is perfectly beautiful in her own right. You have to blinker a hell of a lot of the rest of the film to focus on that muddled message. But it is there. The fact that people of large build ever since this film came out have been teased by bullies and called Shrek suggests something of an own goal. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt and consider their motives to be pure. But these motives aren't the same as Jeffrey Katzenberg's who was rejecting Disney. He was specifically rejecting Eisner, but in so doing, he was also rejecting sweet things. He was also rejecting playing it straight. And then if you think about the characters, Shrek was rejected by his parents in the musical, but definitely by society who hunt him with pitchforks. Fiona was rejected by her parents when she was cursed. They set up this ridiculous 23-year imprisonment just so that their daughter could look normal. Eventually, they were embarrassed by her. Donkey has been rejected by everybody. Farquaad has obviously been rejected and has handled it in the worst way possible. The fairy tale beings are twice rejected, once by Farquaad, again by Shrek. Dragon ends up feeling rejected. We're supposed to sympathize with her because of that. That's the soul of this movie, the outcasts. And ultimately the movie rejects Farquaad's racist perfectionism because he is effectively gentrifying his entire country. He's a lord already and clearly very powerful, but he wants to be a king. Doesn't matter how much money and power he has, nothing's ever perfect enough for him. On a side note, Michael Eisner is 190 centimeters tall. Jeffrey Katzenberg is 160 centimeters tall. If you look at them in photos, Jeffrey looks really, really short. So in his head, maybe he was making a sharp dig at Michael Eisner, but it's possible there were people on the Shrek team who were like, you know who this really feels like? And they didn't know Eisner, but they knew Jeffrey. But this movie hit in 2001, just when everyone was getting ready to reject the 90s, which were themselves a come down period from the 80s. So Family Guy were there, rejecting the safe Simpsons. South Park were there, steadily increasingly rejecting caring about anything. And during this period, The Simpsons was losing its subversive edge. The first bunch of Marvel films, aside from the original Raimi Spider-Man, seemed to be embarrassed with the comic book roots and they were rejecting those. They wanted to make something for, you know, 
grown-ups and teenagers, really mature stuff with evanescence in it. And then the MCU came along in 2008 and Marvel rejected that rejection, embracing their comic roots, saying, no, we're proud of Tony Stark. And they made bajillions from that. But while they were proud of their comic roots, Zack Snyder rejected that. And his version of the DC films was all about, no, we're going to be dark and edgy and everything Marvel isn't. Batman could get raped in prison in my version. There, I said it. And we don't need to showcase all of these individual characters first. We're going to go straight to Justice League. Didn't work out too well. And they've only really succeeded by rejecting that philosophy. And one thing that uh, Bob Chipman said, which just blew my mind, which is around about the time Game of Thrones was finishing, that it actually has more in common with Shrek than it does Lord of the Rings. Because both of them are about rejecting fairy tales in Shrek's case and high fantasy in Game of Thrones' case. Going, yeah, we got magic and mythical creatures, but these magic mythical creatures, fuck. The irony being that if you talk to someone who really knows their Game of Thrones, there's so many characters and so many situations and such a dense history that they can reel off all this nerdy shit. It's just as nerdy as Tolkien, only it's got rape in it. And you've got Rick and Morty rejecting optimistic science. Because what's the point of anything, Morty? Ugh, we're all gonna die. Nothing has a meaning. And even seemingly when the audience are supposed to realize, oh, Pickle Rick is everything you shouldn't be. The toxic fan base squats on it like this aspirational peak of existence because they're rejecting being told what to think. And you got Cinema Sins rejecting all movies. Then you had the new sincerity movement rejecting all of this cynicism, beginning with My Little Pony. Around about the time Friendship is Magic came out, it was surprising, but consistent to see things done straight. It was a twisting of the twist, an untwist, if you will. And finally, I feel like a lot of Generation X parents sat down with their kids to watch Shrek. Generation Shreks? Parents laughed at the risque humour and references to pop culture and other movies. Like, I get that. I understood that reference. And kids laughed at the poop and the donkey that's making waffles. And that's a powerful thing. It changed the face of popular movies. Going to the cinema together as a family to see the latest 3D animated film and buying a picnic while you're there of popcorn, coke and nachos running the bill up to around $70 became much more of an event. And it all kind of comes back to Shrek and movies that are mostly jokes. While everyone's experience varies, especially depending on what you did with your parents, by and large, most of the movies only based on jokes don't stand up to the test of time. And they date like crazy, but in the moment, they are a Shrekspeerience. That's almost less of a cynical read on that than I had. Because in my mind, I think that a lot of those parents found Shrek to be one of the less egregious films they could sit their child in front of to get them to shut up for a little bit because that was the predominant parenting style of the time. I know a lot of people who are younger than me that watched a lot of Shrek when they were a kid. And I, I think maybe it was just because the parents found it less egregious than other options at the time. And obviously there's some generational intersection. You've got Gen X parents, you've got some early millennial parents, you've got some late millennial kids and some very early Gen Z kids who are being raised on Shrek, which feeds into the meme-tastic nature of Shrek. I think you're right. Well, I mean, generational generalizations are so problematic. Like, I'm technically... I'm technically in the earliest stage of millennial, like, uh, of the way that they count that. And uh, 
I have quite a few peers who are like a decade younger than me, but that still puts them like strongly in adulthood with kids and jobs and things. And some of them, I have a friend who got weirdly into Shrek memes for a long time. And I asked why, why? And he didn't have a good answer. It was just, this is something that I recognize from my youth, something that many other people, many of my peers, many of my friends recognize from their youth. So we utilize it as a kind of in-group language, which is so much what memes are about. It's a real, um, what's that Star Trek episode? Do you know what I'm talking about? That's a next generation. No. Oh, oh my God. No idea. I was chased away from Star Trek by fierce Trekkers who could not abide the J.J. Abrams films and whenever I mentioned them on Twitter jumped on my ass. Eventually I just dropped being part of that fandom. And I've heard people say, oh just ignore them. You can't just ignore them when they hijack the conversation. It's like saying about bullies, oh just ignore them. Or they're more scared of you than you are of them. That's bears. So, so big same mood on that one. But I have seen a handful of episodes because I dated a person who was really, really into Star Trek. They sat me down to watch a few of them. And there's one episode from Next Generation, Darmok. It's called Darmok. The, the, the whole concept is that they find this alien species that they're their universal translator doesn't seem to work on because they say things that don't make sense, like Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. And they're like, what What does that even mean? And it turns out that they are specifically referencing kind of a collective storytelling where their entire language were nothing but references to myths and stories that were part of their cultural zeitgeist to the point where they didn't even tell the stories anymore in the same format because they were just part of the language. They were just the language. This episode came out in 1991, and it is so unbelievably relevant for today in thinking about and dissecting meme culture because it is a language that is developed by a community that is generational and that culture spreads those stories and those memes around in a way that generations of memes occur to the point where somebody coming in and investigating the later stage memes have no idea how it ties back to the original concept or what is even going on or being conveyed by these snippets of communication and it is utterly fascinating if you ever watch an episode of star trek to anybody and i am not a star trek fan in any manner this is a really good one to go and look at darmok it's from next generation it's in the fifth season It, it it's slow i mean it's star trek come on now but it's just the idea that it is so unbelievably relevant to today's meme culture that it's it's super worth looking into. Okay, we will see if we can try and watch that. But Star Trek fans, don't recommend episodes to us. It's too late for that. Yeah, and I'm not a Star Trek fan is the thing. That's the key, I think. Let's go back to the Broadway musical. And this song is probably the one that balances that level of re-examining fairy tales without falling into being cynical. This one's a song called I Know It's Today, and it's sung by three versions of Fiona, a seven-year-old version, a 10-year-old version, and a 
30-year-old version of her, played by Sutton Foster, who is the shining star of this show. And it's young Fiona trapped in her tower, growing older all the time, with only these storybooks for company, going kind of crazy. Because the path of her life is being governed by the strictures of these, effectively, holy texts. And it makes her so much more of a real person than anything that happens in that first Shrek film. Whilst at the same time being this rousing, Disney, I want song, Howard Ashman style, that brings the house down. And by the end, the two younger versions of Fiona come out and start harmonising with Fiona as an adult, which can be read as, we are still ourselves when we were ten. We've grown up beyond that, but that version of us is still down there. This song is magic, and it actively defies the cynicism with which this series was made. There's a princess in a tower Oh my gosh, that's just like me Poor Rapunzel needs a haircut But the witch won't set her free She passes time by singing like someone else I know As years go by, she sits and waits As years go by, uh-oh A torturous existence I don't remember this part She wishes she were dead Skip ahead, skip ahead but in the end Rapunzel finds a millionaire The prince is good at climbing and braiding golden hair So I know, he'll appear Cause there are rules and there are strictures I believe the storybooks I read By candlelight, my white knight I know it's today I know it's today Oh, here's a good one. It's a classic. There's a princess in a coma Glad it's her instead of me Pretty maiden in a glass box how I wonder, does she pee? Blah, 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 poison apple, boring, boring, evil queen. Filler, filler, been there, read that seven shorties on the scene. Skip ahead, skip ahead. But in the end, the princess wakes up with a start. The prince is good at kissing and melting Snow White's heart. So I know he'll appear and his armor will be blinding as shining as his perfect teeth and manly hose he'll propose on one knee and our prenup will be binding about time we set a wedding date day number 958 I know it's today Show up today. There's a princess, any princess. Take your pick, they're all like me. Not exactly, I'm still waiting. They're out living happily. 
doctor better get here. I want love and seconds flat. No one needs these middle bits. Whoops, did I do that? Cut the villains, cut the vamping, cut this fairy tale, cut the peril and the pitfalls, cut the puppet and the whale, cut the monsters, cut the curses, keep the intro, cut the verses, and the waiting, the waiting, the waiting, the waiting, the waiting. But I know he'll appear, though I seem a bit bipolar. We could do a whole podcast about all the pop culture references listed in Shrek and why that doesn't make sense internally to the logic of that world. I don't know when the Shrek age was. Oh, God, I was going to call back to that. (laughs) But like, oh, but when is the Shrek age? Well, clearly it's after the 300 age, so it has to be. Oh, God. But it has to be after 1869 because that's when Parfait was invented. And we are kind of drifting into the territory of those Tolkien fans who are like, mm, why were Merry and Pippin eating tomatoes? They were not discovered until man went to the New World. It's obviously not history. But Donkey keeps singing Bette Midler and Willie Nelson songs. He sings Try a Little Tenderness from the Commitments. He's doing Chuck Berry's Duck Walk. When Shrek says, that'll do, Donkey. The average kid watching it now will not have seen Babe. So if they do ever see the far superior pig film, they'll be like, oh, that's where that's from. Which has aged a lot better, I might add. Produced by George Miller, director of Mad Max Fury Road, who directed Babe 2, Pig in the City. And that some of the references are nested inside ref- like other references, or Shrek will say something that's a reference, and then Donkey will respond with a different reference. And I'm just like, oh my god, I'm just very disengaged with that kind of shenanigans. And for some reason, when they meet Robin Hood, he's French. And I was like, oh, is this because they're uh, referencing Le Renard, the uh, French mythology of the fox, who's similar to Robin Hood? And no, no, it's just because they hired Vincent Cassell for the role. I don't know why they hired him, but they made him French. And he's kind of a pig and he talks about getting laid. And they do the river dance joke that had been aired throughout the 90s and done everywhere. And it was tired in 1993 in Robin Hood Men in Tights when the Merry Men did the same shit. 
eight years previously. No kid now knows what fucking river dance is. And then to show this ain't your mama's Disney princess, she can kick ass Matrix style, Fiona kicks the Merry Men's ass with some high-powered martial arts moves that she never uses again in the entire film series and have no explanation for them. Mm, something of a Mary Sue. I'm fine with Fiona being a martial artist. It would have been better just to see her do it more. No, no, that's not true. In the scene after that, Shrek's like, how did you learn to do that? And she says, well, when you're alone in a tower for so long, you learn some things, which is, you know, kind of hand-waving it away. But they, they do at least take a moment to use it as a kind of character connection moment and kind of character growth. Because that whole scene following it doesn't isn't chock full of references, isn't chock full of gags. It's like, oh, you have an arrow in you and them kind of connecting on a level and she tricking Donkey to get him out of there. Where we get a genuinely like good joke where it's like, ah, oh, this would be so much easier if I wasn't colorblind. Like, that's actually funny. But donkeys are colorblind, I believe, in real life. You know, oh no, this would be so much better if I wasn't colorblind. Like, even, like, referencing that is is kind of a funny joke. But just building it as, like, a character moment that where they're genuinely connecting. There's some butt jokes and things in there, too, but they're not dumb gags. They're, they're, they're part of a greater purpose. And then that scene just ends and we go somewhere else. And it's like... God, you're like you have moments that could link together to make something better, but you have to put all these gags in between them because you're afraid you're going to lose your audience's attention. But back to Fiona's isolation. Contrast her portrayal in this film, where they barely go into how she really feels, unless it's about Shrek. With Rapunzel entangled and how she feels when she comes out of the tower and everything is blowing her mind. She's just been waiting for this. And the whole world is something she falls in love with. But of course, though, because could you imagine if Fiona showed any kind of level of genuine wonder as opposed to just under the level like cynical disinterest to the her proceedings? But because this movie is approaching fairy tales from the point of view of a kid trying to act grown up and coming off just like a surly teenager, that's how they place the audience, regardless of their age, gender, and myriad other factors that make people different from each other. They put a phone in everybody's hand and go, okay, all together now, sneer. The characters don't allow themselves to be vulnerable, and they won't let us in. So at the end, when we kind of do get a little below the surface on Shrek, it's too little, too late, and they never explore. But because it's that tiny bit of vulnerability, and they play you a melancholy song, everyone feels like something's been achieved. So it's a shockingly disposable piece of media that only gets by through weird nostalgia to the media that it's referencing, and uh, itself is interreferential. So, like Mikey Newman said, this movie is itself a meme huh so let's go back to the broadway musical and that bit that you were talking about lauren where they get a little closer to each other there's a whole song where shrek and fiona compare their shitty upbringings they realize they have a lot more in common than they might first have thought and then when shrek farts and fiona farts back at him it becomes a song entirely based around the line she's as nasty as you are but the vulnerability on stage of brian darcy james playing shrek and especially Sutton Foster and the little look she gives him as her attitude begins to change. It's possibly the most charming song ever sung with quite this much flatulence and belching. There are things you don't know. 
you know, about me, about how rough I had it. What, in that cushy tower of yours? Cushy? Are you kidding? I had nothing in that tower, fighting boredom by the hour. Princess lonely, walking circles, I had only... Bare essentials, army cot, a hot plate and a chamber pot And every morning I would boil it No choice, I had no toilet Just a view of devastation Out one window, isolation In my bedroom and very little headroom Twenty years I sat and waited I'm very dedicated On the walls, the days were added Luckily those walls were padded So I think I got you beat I think I got you So that was a sad story, but I've heard better. I'm just saying A for effort. Thanks for playing. Sad to see a princess suffer, but I had it rougher. Like that time a mob with torches burned my britches. See the scorches. You're just whiny. I had a flaming hiney. As I fled, I had to wonder if I were torn asunder. Would an ogre go to heaven? Did I mention I was seven? So I think I got you beat. I think I got you beat. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I got you beat. I think I got you beat. Christmas cards And every day Was hell on Earth Day Okay, top this I missed my prom My dad and mom Sent me away It was my birthday I was sent away on Christmas Eve
Again, I do like the implication of the movie that most people don't look like Disney princesses and Disney heroes. Most people look more like the denizens of the Shrek movies. And that should be fine. Fiona falls in love with Shrek because of who he really is. And, and just like everything else we've talked about, Alex, I think there is elements of the text that make even what you what you just said problematic. Because remember, there's a prophecy at play here. That it's a curse that she was under and they were destined for each other, which isn't necessarily a mentality because that comes along with, I am owed this, I should have this, the world should give me this. And specifically about relationships, given the high level of cynicism with the just void of genuine care, interest, or work, makes me think that it fits so well into our current the current mentality shared by some of the most odious individuals on the internet. And I'm, I'm not saying Shrek made incels. No, no, that comes down to misreading of eons worth of storytelling and specifically the ubiquity of stories about some important white guy. It has led to boys feeling, I am owed this. It is a part of of a greater landscape of media that was very instrumental in developing mindsets at the time from people who experienced it a great deal. And the fact that it has such a cultural impact, I think, belies how that cynical perspective that many different sources of media were conveying. And a lot of them had very similar messages, especially around uh, masculinity and the conveyance of the importance of relationships and women being an accessory to men and a lot of those elements that I like I said Shrek did not make incels but I bet a lot of incels have used Shrek memes we, we got to a real dark place with Shrek that I wasn't expecting like watching this film I think I, I said at the beginning that it was appropriately enough that the, the movie was kind of a wet fart in my in my like response to it, I expected to be more upset. I expected to be more annoyed, but in the end I was just kind of blah. Like, well, that was a film technically. And I watched it and I didn't hate the experience. There's a couple of jokes that are legitimate jokes and not gags to other things that I found amusing. But now as we were talking through this and boy, we got to a dark place. Again, the Broadway musical plays it straight. Shrek gets his own I Want song, but it's a grudging, tender admission that all that hero stuff that he sneers at all the time is something that he kind of would want, but he's always been told this isn't for him, not for you. So it is about that aspiration of, I would like to see myself as this version of me, constantly butting heads with the frustration of real life. I guess I'd be a hero With sword and armor clashing Looking semi-dashing A shield within my grip Or else I'd be a Viking And live a life of daring While smelling like a herring Upon a Viking ship I'd sail away I'd see the world I'd reach the farthest reaches I'd feel the wind, I'd taste the salt and sea And maybe 
be storms on beaches. That's who I'd be. That's who I'd be. Or I could be a poet and write a different story. One that tells of glory and wipes away the lies. Into the skies I'd throw it. The stars would do the telling. The moon would help with spelling. And night would dot the eyes. I'd write a verse, recite a joke with wit and perfect timing. I'd share my heart, confess the things I yearn and do it all while rhyming. But we all learn. But we all learn. An ogre always hides. An ogre's fate is known. An ogre always stays in the dark and all alone. So yes, I'd be a hero, and if my wish were granted, life would be enchanted. Or so the stories say. Of course, I'd be a hero, and I would scale a tower to save a hothouse flower. And carry her away, but standing guard would be a beast. I'd somehow overwhelm it. I'd get the girl. I'd take a breath, and I'd remove my helmet. We stand and stare. We speak of love. We feel the stars ascending. We share a kiss. I find my destiny. musical does have its problems, though. Daniel Breaker, who plays Donkey with the best will in the world, isn't Eddie Murphy at the top of his game, in kid-friendly mode at least. I do like Eddie Murphy in these Shrek films. Although he did seem to be channeling Chris Tucker more than Eddie Murphy. He's still amusing, but he's more annoying than he is amusing. And that seems to be the motif of all the fairy tale animals in this. They've got a whole, like, chorus of, like, the three little pigs, the three blind mice... A fairy godmother, a wicked witch. I don't think it's... Like, this is way after Shrek 2, so I don't know why the fairy godmother is in the fairy tale creatures. I guess it's another fairy godmother? And Pinocchio in this is teeth-grindingly annoying. Honestly, when we watch this musical, 
I tend to skip over the bits with the fairy tale creatures just to avoid Pinocchio. But the film and the musical are unkind to short people, to say the least, regarding Farquaad. And Christopher Siebert, while he has a whale of a time as a pantomime villain, most of the jokes seem to stem from, oh, look at his gross little legs. Again, though, he's no substitute for John Lithgow, who I, I think probably is the character in Shrek that makes me laugh the most. Not because he's short, but because he can play the straight man really well, with Frasier-like pomposity. It's possible, in fact, that the reason he and Jennifer Saunders as the fairy godmother in the second film are as funny as they are is because they killed them off after the end of each of their films, so we don't get too much of them. The three blind mice in the film are basically Mr. Magoo. The musical scores an own goal if it's trying to make big people feel good about themselves. When Donkey makes the joke, I'll be on you like a fat kid on cake. And the big bad wolf is subject to various, not especially mean-spirited, but kind of ignorant trans jokes. I'm grinding my teeth. Yeah, it's not fantastic. Uh, it's funny because in the actual movie Shrek, I didn't remember the scene where Shrek finds the, the wolf in his bed. And I'm like, oh, no, this is going to be bad. This is going to be, oh, no, oh, no. And, and he goes in and the wolf just looks at him and goes, what? And that was the whole, and I was like, hey, that that wasn't. I thought that was going to be way more transphobic. Like Now, the wolf in the musical says, they took away my granny dress and called me a hot and tranny mess. Yep. <clears throat> also, one of the elves in the musical says, I'm coming out and telling everyone I'm a Scientologist, which is not the same. There's a very confused kind of let your freak flag fly element to the fairy tale creatures in the musical. It capitalizes on the fact that the crowds who go in for Broadway musicals tend to feel a little bit outside of the norm. It reminded me very much of This Is Me from The Greatest Showman, which was similarly confused regarding the positioning of the unusual people in its cast. And they literally say in the final number, you are us and we are you. It is attempting, however clumsily, to be inclusive. And I like the message of, it's them who needs to change, not us. And one of the best lines from Shrek himself, fairy tales need to be updated. Which, after all the fart jokes, after all the pop culture references and the cynicism, that is actually true. For fairy tales to be relevant and useful to us in the modern age, they do need to be updated. They do need to accommodate for the way that the world and us have changed. And I suppose the most positive repercussion of the Shrek series, the animation movement that followed it, even if it did ultimately result in the death of hand-drawn animation in American theatrical releases is that Disney in particular, the caretakers of fairy tales, the seeming de facto owners of Snow White and Cinderella and company, did in fact react in a way that was positive and a way that was responsible to this. Beginning with the disassembly of the Disney princess that was Enchanted, continuing effectively to remake the Fiona side of this story with Tangled, which is frankly a masterpiece, and then broadly celebrated with the incredibly successful Frozen, given a firm step forward with Moana. Fairy tales and mythology can stand up to being updated. It is clear that Disney doing this is something that people will reward them for. Disney also hired Andrew Adamson for those first two Chronicles of Narnia movies, and those are really good. So that's another very positive thing to come out of Shrek. 
and we will cover those Narnia films at some point in the future. I can't wait. I love those. Shrek did do some good. Somebody. And as always, I would be remiss not to mention that We Hate Movies did a show on Shrek. It's fucking hilarious, and I'm going to play just a clip from that with a little Shrek anecdote you might like. Somebody. What's your looking like, Shrek story? Okay, so um, this came out in 2001. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I was in high school. Before the towers before, went down. It, before we, the you, towers went down, the latter half of high school. And this might have been like 2002 or something. Sure. Um, but <clears throat> I don't know if it was hotornot.com, uh, but it was something like that where you rate photos yes, of yep. people. That was hotornot.com. I might have been an off one because there was a comment area as well. I don't oh. know if that was the, I can't remember any of this stuff. But uh, me and my friend from high school, we used to, you know, take like angsty photos of each other. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Of course you do. Yeah, yeah of course. Everyone's and, then, that. and that Chris Cabin definitely did. Yeah. And then, <laughs> you know, unbeknownst to me, he's like, oh, yeah, I put that photo up on uh, this uh, rating site. Oh no. oh, no. Oh, without your permission? Yeah. So then I go that to stinks. it. And like the one comment on it, it was, it was like this one person says, he looked like Shrek. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Just like all lowercase. <laughs> no time for punctuation. <laughs> I love the idea that you have to fucking write that and hit send. You know what I mean? He looked like Shrek. Oh, uh, you know that, that guy looked like Shrek. He, he looked like Shrek. <laughs> Who looked like Shrek? He looked like Shrek. <laughs> It's just like, you know, you have to, like, it's in your brain, and it can't just be like, hey, buddy, yep. doesn't that guy look like Shrek? No, no. Hey, everybody, he looked like Shrek. But that's not why I hate the movie. <laughs> no. I hated it when I saw it originally. Let she me looked- talk to you. Um, uh, may I speak uh, of my uh, uh, experience with this film? Uh-huh. Uh, was t- the year was 2001, Christmas 2001. And someone said on a website, you look like Donkey? <laughs> <laughs> no. Dumbo? <laughs> Uh, I, I I got for Christmas. Me and my brother got a DVD player. Whoa, whoa, Watching whoa. things on DVD. Yeah, we blew we blew the roof off the house. Wow, mm. man, that's pretty cool. And but no one Your got TV me any exploded. Nobody got anybody on any DVDs. So I had to go to Blockbuster to rent <laughs> one. And what I did was I spiked up my hair, which was the style oh, of the time. Yes, nice. it was. And I got what I also got for Christmas was a pair of yellow sunglasses. Hell yeah! Uh-huh. And I walked down Sugar in this, Ray coming through in this olive snowboarder jacket, which I also got for Christmas. <laughs> nice. This is a big Christmas. It was a huge Christmas for me. Did, and uh, did it all come in a pimp set, or <laughs> was it separate things that had to be purchased? And I just look back at myself now. I must have looked like the guy from Smash Mouth, man. <laughs> And what I did was rent Shrek. And this is my wow. first DVD I ever saw. So, wait, wow. did, you, did you see it in the theater at all? No, no, no. It was just like, oh, people like this movie. That's the only... Right. And look, there was like nine DVDs or whatever it was there. I was like, yeah. Shrek! I saw Shrek in the theater. Oh, yeah? So did I. And I was just fuming the entire time. Fuming. Hey, everybody, everybody, turn the lights on. Bring the house lights up. That guy over there? He looks like Shrek. <laughs> In hindsight, they were probably right. (laughs) Okay, it's about time I blew all of your goddamn minds. This show you've been listening to was not what it seemed. Originally, Sharon, Victoria, and myself met up on Skype to discuss Shrek together late last year, but then catastrophically 
our side of the conversation came out distorted and sounded horrible. That what you said earlier about Katzenberg making creative decisions about a movie based on whether or not the little boys in the audience could sit still and pay attention. Mm-hmm. And it it just, it almost feels like he's, the guy's got a focus group in his head. Mm. Who are and, very unfocused. And he's, <laughs> he's allowing... Uh, things to be shaped and decisions to be made based on the explicit visual responses that he gets from his test audiences. And what does any podcaster do at that stage? They pack it in, throw the file in the garbage. Maybe if they're determined to bring their listeners that show, they re-record it either immediately or later when it doesn't feel like going back through the same motions. It's really difficult to muster that same exact level of enthusiasm a second time. We still haven't re-recorded the Kung Fu Panda 2 show that this happened to back in 2016. But I'd written extensive Shrek notes, and Victoria said so many brilliantly insightful things. So my editing wizard brain started whirling. I went into audacity and worked my magic. And after a long time, I had recorded a call and response track that adequately sold the illusion that I was reacting to her and she was reacting to me. So when we're talking, we're not actually talking. That's me listening to a recording of what Victoria said and responding like she's there on the end of the line. And I just died a little inside whenever they they talked about that because it was just so... Like, really? Really? Okay. Okay. So like Assassin's Creed when they said we couldn't animate a female lead character because all those jiggles, we'd have to get the references for that, and who knows what a woman looks like. I didn't know that DreamWorks was a subsidiary of Ubisoft. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. It was one of the most complicated, delicate, balancing acts of my career, and I think we pulled it off rather well. She gave me so much stuff to work with. I will, of course, always tell you if this happens again. And technically, everything I just said is what I said first time around, just you got to hear my second take. And unfortunately, having Sharon there would have made it straight up a nightmare to coordinate. But I did make sure that the points she raised got into the recording. So yes, what you just heard was podcasting wizardry, and I'm very glad I could save it. If you want to hear my audio magic delivering you fascinating fiction, you can download Stories from the New Century Multiverse, which has been going since 2013. This week, we just started Phase 2 and our ninth book, Uncivil Outlaw. Here's a clip. From within, the sound of a rhythmic clacking could be heard. I recognized it as a furiously working typewriter. I knocked and waited. <coughs> Get the fuck away from me! Came the roar from within. Or can you not see the do not disturb sign I glued to my door? It's room service, you old bastard. I'm the old bastard now, you scum-sucking worm! The fury continued as I heard the sound of a chair shifting. You're interfering with the recording of history. Unfiltered, unregulated... The door swung open, and there stood Raven, his hair a mess, half a bottle of whiskey clutched in two fingers of his right hand, a pewter beer stand of what turned out to be cold coffee hanging from the others. Un- Holy shit, Gray! Get in here! He commanded. It's good to see you too. And our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, 
Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gesiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. We will be back next week with the brilliant version of Shrek, The Princess Bride. perception of Shrek has changed over the years. Now adults, by and large, tend to think he's tacky as hell. It was supposed to be a fifth film, but they cancelled it. I guess when your meme is more famous for doing creepy weird things on the internet for a whole new generation of kids, makes it difficult to market. Shrek himself needs an update. But it's never ogre, and I feel like the Macarena, we will see Shrek again at some point. It's a big, bright, beautiful world With happiness all around It's peaches and cream If our dream comes true It's a big, bright, beautiful world With possibilities everywhere If true love is blind, maybe you won't mind the view I know I'm not the handsome prince for whom you waited I don't have a fancy castle and I'm not sophisticated A princess and an ogre, I admit, is complicated You've never read a book like this But fairy tales should really be updated It's a big, bright, beautiful I see it now, I'll let it in I'll tear down a wall and clear a spot for two To be with you I know.
Like me as I am Love me as I look Standing here in all my glory I am sweetness, I am bratty I'm a princess, I'm a fatty I'm a mess of contradictions in a dress I am sassy, I am sappy Came to live on the swamp with a beautiful princess. And his best friend. And his best friend. And a gingerbread bear. And a very handsome puppet. And an elf. Okay. And a fairy godmother. Okay, and that's a enough. And a cross-dressing wolf. Well, three things.